Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. We're in Boston today with two folks who are not just doing important work on the hunger issue, but really are kind of forces of nature in this community in terms of uh, what they're doing, mobilizing people for many, many good causes. Uh, I'm here with Bob Laws, who's the president and CEO of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association and somebody who has uh, really, you've lived and breathed restaurants almost all your career, Bob. All my, You're all, a restaurant guy. All my life. Graduated from UMass with a degree in hospitality management. Good. We're going to come back and talk about that. Um, and Aaron McAleer, who's the new president and CEO of Project Bread, but has been a social justice uh, advocate and champion uh, almost, I think, your entire career. We knew each other when you were working at an organization called Be the Change. Uh, before that, you actually worked in Governor uh, Deval Patrick's administration, so you've got real uh, experience with government systems change, how you really scale up uh, massive types of reform, and uh, we're thrilled to have you here, Aaron. Um, so we always talk food and restaurants to share our strength because that's so, so much a part of what we do. Um, Bob, you go back to Rusty Scupper, Applebee's, a number of brands that are really almost, you know, they've been legendary brands in the restaurant business, as, as many of us think about as the industry started to change and as casual dining chains built up. Um, talk a little bit about how you got started with restaurants. Yeah, so uh, I, I actually... Uh, was at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, undecided major, and uh, had taken an intro class to hospitality management and said, geez, I've worked in it, and it seems like a pretty cool major. And uh, most importantly, back then, it had not as, not as many math classes as most majors, and uh, uh, that was for me. So, uh, uh, so I jumped in and absolutely loved it, uh, got a degree from that. Uh, came off campus, uh, thought I was going to end up in hotels, had one offer from uh, one restaurant company, Rusty Scupper, okay. and uh, started with them, went through a management training program, became a general manager by the ripe old age of 24. Are they still around? Uh, there Scupper? is actually one or There's two. There's one? one or really? Two where, where are they? Where are they based? Uh, Inner Harbor in Baltimore, for okay. sure. All right. uh, I know it's still up and running. Uh, and... Um, uh, Made a move out of operations, ended up getting into uh, HR and uh, training uh, and leading those uh, disciplines, first with uh, uh, Back Bay Restaurant Group here in Boston, uh, multi-concepted company, Charlie Sackers owned, uh, sort of along the East Coast, then with Applebee's in the very early days, uh, and then uh, ultimately with a company called, uh, well, 99 Restaurants up in Boston, and uh, nationally owned by a company that became known as American uh, Blue Ribbon Holdings, and we had 800 restaurants in 43 states and 35,000 employees. Are they in Tennessee now? They are there? based in Nashville, Tennessee. In Nashville. Yep. That's what I thought. It's big, big company. Big, big company, yep. Uh, and how did you end up as the president and CEO of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association? You know, I was commuting from— Sounds uh, like a heck of a good job, yeah, by the way. <laughs> it's a great job, actually. Uh, I loved it. Uh, I was commuting from Boston to Nashville every week, and um, and I know you commute a little bit. Um, yep. And and I said to my wife, you know, uh, I got about seven or eight years left in me, and I know I'm not going to get on a plane Monday, come back Friday. So either let's move to Nashville, or it's time to come back up to Boston. And and honestly, both our kids um, went to Southern schools, and we never thought they'd come back up here. And both of them came back They're up here. here. So uh, that was our answer. And so uh, uh, I had known my predecessor for 20 years. I talked to him, said I I'm starting to think about the next big thing, and he said maybe this would be the next big thing. He was looking to. Uh, make an exit strategy. Peter Christie, one of the best people around. So, Well, I think many of us have uh, or had fathers who asked when we were going to get real jobs. Yeah. I think my dad asked that when we started Share Our Strength as, as well. I don't know about you, uh, Aaron, but, um, you know, 
you're not in the restaurant industry, Aaron, but you're certainly involved in making sure that people get food. Yeah. Um, Tell us about Project Bread. Tell us how you got there. Sure. I was a waitress for a number of years okay. through okay. college, so I bring that experience, and that was one of the, I will say, one of the funnest jobs I've ever had. Um, but yeah, so I, similarly to you, I was in college and, and sort of wondering, you know, I was declared, but I still didn't know exactly what I was going to be doing. Um, and I took one of those career assessment, you know, tools, and it came out politics. So I, um, my first uh, professional experience was actually working for then U.S. Senator John Kerry as an intern, and um, I, I knew immediately upon, you know, taking that internship that I had two passions, social justice and politics. Um, and I was really exploring what to do with that and, and what career path I should go down. Um, and a, a really wise social worker that I know, my mother, um, encouraged me to consider social work um, and, and really made the case that, you know, the foundations of social work is really around community organizing, policy planning, administration. And I vividly remember her telling me the story about this woman named Frances Perkins. And Frances Perkins was on um, the cabinet of President Roosevelt. And right. she was Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, right. she yep. was the. Um, First woman to serve on a presidential cabinet and um, also the first social worker to serve on a presidential cabinet. And she drafted the New Deal. And I remember my mom looking at me and very, you know, logically, simplistically saying, why don't you take your passions and, and go do that? Large scale system change. Why don't you be the next Frances Perkins? So haven't quite gotten there yet, but that that is where I, my career began. And I, I went to the Boston College Graduate School of Social Work and got my degree in, in just that community organizing, policy planning and administration. And, and as Billy reference in the beginning. Most of my career has been in politics. I worked um, as an advocate for a number of years um, for nonprofit organizations working on affordable housing, immigrant rights, um, voter rights. I worked um, in the governor's budget office, um, who at the time was actually Governor Romney, and, and, and one of my charges as a fiscal analyst was around SNAP enrollment. Um, at the time I was that fiscal analyst, uh, Massachusetts was in the 40s for a number of eligible people enrolled in SNAP. So we had a, a Republican president and a Republican governor who were both you know, saying, let's get more people en enrolled in this anti-hunger program. Um, I say that because I think that we're, we're not quite in that place right now, unfortunately. Um, I worked in the legislature, um, which is where I got to know some of Bob's colleagues. Um, and and then I, and as Billy referenced, I was in Governor Deval Patrick's administration. I was chief of staff at the Department of Transitional Assistance. Um, and at the time that I was at the Department of Transitional Assistance, um, SNAP and anti-hunger programs were very much under assault. And, and I did a lot of work um, around legislative and communication strategy. Um, and then I ended my well, I shouldn't say end it. I'm sure at some point I will be circling back. But I, I, um, my last career or, or position in, in politics was as Deval Patrick's um, advisor. Uh, I was his director of cabinet affairs and, and really a policy advisor. And so when I left that world, um, I was deciding, you know, what to do for next steps. And I felt strongly I really wanted to go back to my roots um, around community organizing and policy and planning and and um, go into the nonprofit sector, but specifically work for nonprofits focused on large scale systems change and doing it through cross-sector collaboration, citizen engagement, movement building, um, and advocating for, for advocacy and, and policy solutions. And so, um, as Billy referenced, that's where I first met Billy at Be the Change, and, and that's a national nonprofit that was doing that type of work. And then, you know, a few months ago, this position opened up at Project Bread, and it is my dream job. Um, one, I am passionate about issues of hunger. 
Um, I face food insecurity in my own childhood, so it's something that I am aware of. I'm, I understand the causes and the manifestations of hunger. Um, and, and that was growing up where, Erin? I grew up in I, the North Shore. I was in Peabody as a, a younger child and then in Ipswich later in life. So middle class family, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, there's probably family and friends listening to this podcast that didn't know that we were actually experiencing that. But a single mom, three kids. Um, not full-time job and you know you do the math and put it all together and and what expense doesn't you know um, make it through and and what I often share and I think it's important to say is that you know when I went to bed at night I didn't have hunger aches Um, my mother was you know we had pancakes Um, I remember we used to have frozen pumpkin pie a lot Um, so it wasn't the hunger aches what I did go to bed remembering was mom is so stressed out mom is wondering how and hearing her on the phone and saying you know how am I gonna I remember that you know I can her voice in my head now how am I going to feed these kids you know and so that's what I went to bed understanding and, and so that's something that I bring to this this world um a, a passion that we it's a preventable problem it's a solvable problem and and how do we address it so um so Project Bread you know I have the personal passion for the issue but I also just believe the approach of Project Bread is absolutely the right one our mission is to prevent an end hunger um, and in order to do that, we, you got to create a movement and, and, you know, the walk for hunger, which a lot of people are familiar with, and this year is the 50th is just that it's getting people out there walking the walk and, and saying that we've got to tackle this issue. Um, and then activating those individuals to become engaged citizens through policy advocacy, through volunteerism, um, you know, doing tremendous work around policy advocacy, both in Washington, DC, but here in Massachusetts, um, and then access and, and, and project bread does incredible work, um, in enrolling individuals that are older than snap around school breakfast, around making school lunch, healthier summer meals program. So the, the project bread. So when the job opened, I, I did everything I possibly could to get it because I just, I think this organization is doing it the right way. And I'm just really excited to be a part of it. Uh, and Bob loves, loves, you probably have some window into this in, in some ways related to what we were talking about earlier, because I have had, I know I have had, and I'm sure you've had many more, so many experiences and exchanges with folks, particularly in the casual dining segment of the restaurant industry. When I talk to young people who are at a cash register raising money for share our strength, whether it's Shake Shack or, um, you know, some other organization, uh, as I often talk to them, they often say to me, you know, I used to be one of those kids. I get it. And because it is an industry that has lots of, as we were talking about earlier, entry-level opportunities Mm -hmm. and so you tend to have people who have grown up you know and sometimes in pretty rough circumstances yeah you know it's uh staggering in america in massachusetts the numbers are the same uh one out of every 10 jobs is directly in a restaurant Mm -hmm. uh one out of 10 yeah wow and so and that's at any given point in time and that doesn't include the amount of people that um supply our business the goods and services um, that that we sell and that we use, so it's so we have an incredible workforce here in Massachusetts, three hundred thousand people, and again, ten percent across the country, and so when you think about that, it's it, it's pretty um, it, it's pretty clear that you're going to have all walks of life, but because we are the land of op- hope and opportunity, and I do believe that um, uh, we employ a lot of people that really have had hard times, uh, either are experiencing hard times or have had hard times in life, and they're looking for that opportunity, and they come with tremendous attitudes, and they're open about the challenges that they've had and the um, and the, the heartaches that they've had, and our industry um, embraces that and because we, you know, our chefs and managers and, and, and owners um, – that's what gets them up at night. That's or that's what gets them coming back to work. That's what gets them doing the crazy hours, the nights and weekends that we do. Because mm-hmm. 
to see these people come in and and let them gel and become something that they weren't when they walked through the door you know to see them come in and start as a as a minimum wage uh, uh, dishwasher and work their way up to a kitchen manager's position where they can you know have a um, uh, just provide for a family and, and have tremendous opportunity that's what we're all about and and it's really heart heartbreaking to see initially heartwarming to see as they as people really excel in our industry you know we're, and we're having this conversation on a day when topic a in the country is diversity and inclusiveness mm-hmm. and our president's uh, somewhat vulgar comments i would say uh, about about people who come from uh you know whether it's haiti or, or african countries the industry that you're a part of and lead has probably got to be one of the most diverse and inclusive that we've got in this country. You may know statistics better than I do. I, I don't know them, but I just know from being involved in the industry, the diversity is impressive. Yeah, I mean, uh, whether it's minority-owned, woman-owned, um, you know, we are the leading industry uh, for, um, uh, you know, the, the, the people that, uh, you know, would, would fall into those categories. Again, um, you know, immigration and and DACA, those things are very important to our our, our constituency. Um, it's uh, it's something that uh, again we embrace it truly. Uh, I think um, it's more than a th- uh, it's it's approaching fifty percent minority owned, and it's approaching forty percent uh, woman owned businesses. And again, you know, you think of the large chains; that's one segment of our business, but. Uh, again, I'll get into a number here. Massachusetts, 15,350 restaurants. Um, you know, that's a staggering amount of uh, operations. And again, um, because there's an entrepreneurial spirit, because people can grow from those roles, and there's a relatively easy avenue to get into that if you do really, if you treat people right and, and you know how to take care of the guest and you know how to take care of the employee, those people are able to kind of grow into that role. Uh, and it gives them an avenue to really succeed and provide for others as well. And then once they do it, it kind of mm-hmm. propels itself because they want to give back and they yep. want to make sure they provide those opportunities for other people. So well, I, I was on a plane back here from Washington last night, and, of course, everybody was looking at their uh, iPhones and these comments of, of President Trump's and so forth. And, and I, I, I was thinking about this industry since I spent so much time in it and how it must feel if you're one of the people that you're talking about mm-hmm. to see those type of comments about somebody who is just wherever you're from. If you're just, you know, if you're an immigrant, if you're not from here, knowing how hard you've worked and to be disparaged in that way, it's just got, you know, it's just it's one of those things. There have been lots of shocks, obviously, over the last year with this administration. But this one just felt like it. I think it saddened so many people to just yeah. know that that's our level of discourse in this mm-hmm. country. It's just... Uh, Really stunning. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Project Bread and make sure people understand what it is. Yep. It's a nonprofit organization based here in Boston that runs a, a phenomenal thing called the Walk for Hunger that helps yep. it raise money. Yep. Uh, but the other thing I'd like you to address a little bit, Aaron, is my sense from working in you know 50 states on hunger issues is uh, almost every place has a food bank, which is very important, and emergency food assistance, and uh, most communities have children's hospitals that can deal with malnutrition, things like that. Uh, There aren't that many Project Breads. It's unique. unique. So describe why. Yeah, so it's a statewide organization, um, and yes, the Walk for Hunger is, as I would say, you know, people are very familiar with the Walk for Hunger, and and for 50 years, all the money that we've raised for the Walk for Hunger has gone right back out into the community and investing in community solutions. Um, You know, I think, you know, what, what I love about 
about Project Red and, and the work that we do is it's both on the ground and then at the, the larger systems level. And so, you know, you know, a perfect example I use is is we've got a, a hotline right outside of our office that we've got, you know, five hotline staff answering calls all day and, and linking people up to food resources. They're linking them up to food banks in their community, but they're also signing them up for SNAP going through the entire application process. So and, these are just low-income families who know to call Project Red and yep. they'll help me connect to the resources that I need. Exactly. So if they say, you know, I need food tonight, it's great. Go down the street. There's a church. They've got food. But while I have you on the phone, can I also get your SNAP application started, which is going to be a much more sustainable, you know, resource for you going forward. And do you and actually get, sorry to interrupt, do you actually get calls every day? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, every yes, day? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a tremendous, and, and now we obviously, you know, it's called the hotline, but we've moved towards uh, um, online chatting as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, we are, it is a, um, it's a huge resource. Um, but what's great, and this is where, you know, trying to get back to, to explain what Project Bread is, this is, this is what Project Bread does, is that we're in the community, we're in community health centers, we're in schools we've got this hotline but what we are able to do and this is where i think we are extremely unique is take that information that we're seeing on the ground and pivot quickly to large-scale systems change and so you know some examples that i would use is is you know for example project bread has worked in schools since 1995 around and students in school breakfast um and obviously we've done a, a, a lot of work throughout our history around snap and and we put forth the first pilot in the country that said let's do an automatic eligibility for children that are receiving SNAP to receive school um, breakfast so that we're taking out a next another application for their parents to be filling out. They should absolutely be getting food. And so one, um, of, the, I, yeah. one of the challenges that I'd love to hear you talk about is yeah. when the infrastructure of providing meals that exist during the school right. year is not there, what happens in the summertime and what happens to the families and children who depend right. on it? Perfect. So a lot of kids unfortunately we just we know go hungry um during the summer months and and for us when you know when i'm mapping out where our uh biggest need is it it absolutely is summer meals for for youth um we what we have done as an approach to it is to identify the places where kids already are so um the ymcas the boys and girls clubs last summer we did a lot of work with the libraries this coming summer we're working with hud um and and going into housing complexes to provide meals for for summer but for for a lot of kids it's um there's safety reasons that they might not come out to these summer meals programs there's transportation issues for why they might not make it so um so for us we need to strategically look at how how do we make sure that we are providing meals in a place where they're already organically going and, and trying to feed them? Um, but the need is much bigger than and the, the solution that we currently have. So Project Bread as a systems change agent is able to, you know, we've got our partners in the community doing it and forming it at a large scale. So I think that's what makes Project Bread really, really unique. Um, I also would say that, you know, as you're referencing, you know, there's food banks, there's hospitals. We think it is it, it is a multi-pronged approach. Um, we don't think there's one silver bullet to hunger. We, we are supportive of, you know, food rescue programs, urban farm, community gardening, food pantries, you know, whatever way people can access food, um, we are investing in in those solutions, um, while also still heavily promoting the ones that have the highest impact and that we can really take to scale. Um, So that's what's a unique lens for us as well, is that, you know, every part of the continuum of anti-hunger, we are doing some aspect of it because we think it's extremely important that it's that we are multi-pronged. And the other thing I, I should say is that our entire approach, whether it's around citizen engagement, access, 
access policy reform is predicated on having strong partnerships. And we have over 800 organizations statewide that we are partnering with in some capacity, whether it's sitting on a coalition around affordable housing and, and wages, or whether it's working you know, with libraries or housing authorities around summer meal programs. I mean, we need to have strong partnerships in order to, to move our work forward. about many of the issues that Aaron described, uh, your members are actually working on as well. Hunger, nutrition, nutrition education, community gardens, teaching kids. Tell us about some of the things that the, the both the restaurant association and the restaurant industry here in Massachusetts is involved in, in terms of community and philanthropy. Yeah. So I think, you know, um, when you think of the local restaurants, um, I, honestly, and, and I know I come from the business, but I don't think you're ever going to see a more philanthropic group of people um, who believe that um, neighborhood marketing is really about, you know, being a good neighbor and giving back to the to the group that uh, comes within three to five of the miles of their restaurant and is 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 their customer, and and that makes all the difference in the world, and that's the way I think restaurants have really uh, grown and driven. Uh, you know, it used to be that. Um, I think it was in, as late as 1976 or 77, 24% of the dollar was spent away from home, uh, the food dollar. Now it's 51%. Um, and it's because we're a community, we're a gathering place for the community. And, and in many cases, it's not the high-end you know, restaurant, really special experience. It's, it's getting together in a, in a community setting and, and being able to engage each other around a meal that um, you know, is for fuel. But along the way, the chefs value, um, uh, again, those that, that don't have and those that are challenged. And so, you know, one of the first things, you know, I learned a lesson early on, um, well, not too long ago, or, or many years ago, actually, uh, from one of my employers. Um, when I got to the 99 Restaurant Group years ago, uh, it was owned. It was started by a, a guy named Charlie Doe, uh, and it's then became second generation owned, and and now the family's um, moved on. But Charlie Doe was very active, and he really believed that it was important to give back to those that weren't um, as lucky as he was. And so when he opened, it was funny the way he got there. When he when he opened his first restaurant, his mother grabbed him by the ear and dragged him down to the Pine Street Inn. And brought which him is the, the homeless shelter which here is in the Boston. homeless shelter in Boston, largest homeless shelter in the Northeast. Lindia Downey and team just do an incredible job, and um, and brought him in the back door. And he said, "Mom, why am I here?" And she said, "Because you need to realize that, you know, not everybody is as lucky as you. And you, you know, if not for the luck of God, you could be one of these people right now. And so I need you to realize that as you go through, and hopefully huh. you can give back." And that stuck with Charlie. It resonated with Charlie to the point where. Uh, you kind of fast forward. He was always involved, he, and he always uh, did different things there. And then we made a uh, the '99 actually rebuilt their entire kitchen, put a training to, uh, program together that allowed two things to happen: one, it doubled the amount of production that they could do at the, at the end for the guest, and two, um, the training program was put together so that folks could go through it and then be guaranteed jobs in the hotels and restaurants in in and around Boston. Uh, and so it's really been something that's uh, been pretty neat. They supply all the food on uh, the second Tuesday of every month. You know all the guests know when it's 99 night. The, the, Lindy will tell you the, the lines are always bigger. 
uh, and a team from each restaurant goes in and, and works all day preparing the food with the team at Pine Street and then and gives it away. And it was that focus on saying, we're going to do one or two things. You know, restaurants get hit from every angle. You know, everybody wants, can I have this to help, you know, this this group? Or can we get a gift certificate for this? Or we could get a gift certificate for this. And one of the things Charlie said early on is, we can't be everything to everybody. I want to do something meaningful and in a large way. And so they focused on the Pine Street Inn. And they, then they, the second charity, they focused on the Boys and Girls Club. And in every town that they operated in, they were, there was an involvement there in Pine Street you know, was bigger than life. And it was that focus on one or two things that made me think when I got into this role four and a half years ago, geez, you know, can we do that as a, as an organization here? And we went through a process and, and I brought to the, the board and it's an incredible board, 41 of the leading food and beverage industry execs in the greater Massachusetts area and presented five different causes. Uh, and one of which was uh, share strength, no kid hungry. And I had seen Andy Husband do some really cool things uh, in the South End for uh, a dinner that he does that he just celebrated 20 years. And um, we said, could we replicate this? And overwhelmingly, you know, the five causes were all tremendous and they were all very similar. But overwhelmingly, uh, the, the group migrated to uh, No Kid Hungry. And, um, and it's been uh, a growing experience for us and one that's... Uh, um, I, our chefs, um, locally and nationally, migrate to this uh, like there's no tomorrow. And for the event that you're talking about, it's uh, chefs in different restaurants mm-hmm. doing a dinner in which uh, everything that the customers contribute or pay that night uh, goes to the, the No Kid Hungry campaign. Yeah, so you have restaurants that close. Uh, you have collaborating. Coll- uh, so so there's a, obviously a give back there for the location. And then all the team that works that donates all their time. Uh, and uh, collaborating chefs come in. The food and beverage is donated uh, and, uh, as well from our business partners that are so supportive of what we do. And they sell out the restaurant um, at a pretty good price, and yes, 100% of the money, including any gratuities that the staff gets, uh, are given so, to the cause. So the staff, they're, do- they're donating. The servers, everybody's donating their, their 100%, tips and gratuities. 100% volunteer to work. 100% volunteer to give all And it's adding up to real money now. Yeah, so Andy Andy had, you know, Andy's, uh, like I said, I, I when I first started, I went to the dinner the first year, was blown away. Uh, two years later, we started it up. Uh, we did five dinners the first year. Uh, we did eight dinners last year. We uh, hit $107,000 last year. Uh, and this year we'll hit a dozen. And... Um, and we're going to keep going. We th- we think we can really take this across the entire state. I'd I'd like nothing else than to have dinners from uh, Provincetown to Newburyport, Boston to Pittsfield, and everywhere in between. Okay, you heard it here on Ad Passion and Star. <laughs> Bob Luz is committed, uh, and I want to say thank you. But yeah. um, we're thrilled to have you uh, here, Bob, and Aaron McAleer from uh, Project Bread. Aaron, it, when you talk about systems change as a way of addressing some of the challenges that Bob's referring to. Um, What does that mean for people who are not um, immersed in policy, don't have state government backgrounds, don't, um, you know, live and breathe politics? What does systems change mean? And how do you, does it mean passing laws? And how do you actually do it? Do you have relationships with the mayor and the governor and legislatures? How does that, how does that get accomplished? So on a very simplistic level, what I would say, it's identifying a barrier that we know is, you know, 
an individual can't access something or, or it's it's perpetuating the cycle of poverty. There's, you know, there's barriers out there and systems change is really how do you eradicate those barriers? And, and sometimes it's a regulatory change. Sometimes it's a legislative change. Sometimes it's a, you know, an example I would use is when the Internet first uh, became popular. Project Bread was the first organization that started doing online SNAP applications. And, you know, this is an access, you know, people that are not walking into offices to apply for SNAP or mailing it in one. This is So that's an example of a systems change that we've spearheaded. It's done in so many different ways. I think, one, it, it has to be well-informed. And I think because Project Bread's on the ground and we're seeing where those barriers actually exist, um, we're able to then uh, take it. But it, it is it, it, government is... is I think, you know, I, I'm not somebody, even though I spent most of my career, that thinks government is the only solution. Government's a part of the solution. But, um, you know, large scale systems change that the government absolutely plays a, a critical role. And, you know, Billy, you care about, you know, breakfast in the classroom, um, just like Project Bread is really passionate about it. And, you know, sometimes systems changes aren't necessarily these massive things. Um, and breakfast after the bell is an example one. How do we change that system and make sure schools throughout the, the state? are implementing breakfast after the bell. Meaning kids don't have to get to the cafeteria early exactly. before school, but could actually eat during the, class, the, exactly. the school day. Exactly. And, and the way we've approached that is in a number of different ways. I mean, um, one thing in Massachusetts that just in the past, um, I would say past 18 months, is that you know the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education said, you know what, eating breakfast can count as learning time. And that's a systems change because then uh, teachers can say, all right, you're you know eating your breakfast and we'll start getting working on the math uh, work for today. And and so sometimes these big changes are not necessarily hugely monumental or even cost a lot of money, but they result in, in really large scale impact. Well, speaking of school kids and teaching yeah. school kids, you were telling us a story, Bob, right before we have kind of really started recording yeah. about some of the chefs and restaurateurs who were involved in raising money for us that are now working to help kids understand where food comes from and yeah, that type so of thing. I, I was, we have one of our partners, um, uh, Rob Alquist and his team at Worcester Restaurant Group, uh, out in Worcester, uh, so in the central part of the state. And Rob um, uh, has been, uh, he jumped on with us uh, first year, and he's a big supporter of what we're doing. And he, the more he's learned, he's involved in a, um, a, f- a community-owned farming uh, uh, establishment out in central Massachusetts um, who, they have 20, 22 acres, I believe, and their whole mission is to um, grow fruit and produce that is then brought back to uh, those that need it most, and uh, with a strong emphasis on children and, and the schools um, in central Massachusetts. And, and he's, as he learned more about what we're doing with No Kid Hungry, now they've, they've taken it to the point where they're trying to re- replicate some things, and they are now teaching children, uh, bringing them in, and a lot of times maybe towards the end of elementary, but really middle school strongly. That's where they kind of were focused, as he was telling me, on how to cook and um, you know, use the right products to eat uh, well right. uh, and to, you know, uh, use all the product, do it on a budget, um, all the good things that our chefs love about what we're doing with No Kid Hungry with, or not we're doing, that you and your organization are doing and that we're, we're part of. Um, but he's now taking that to all of the Central Mass schools. And uh, it's been, as he said, uh, you know, first of all, they've got a big board that's you know ranges from banks and insurance companies out in the central part of the state, and it's resonating with all of them. The importance of uh, helping teach um, our next generation how to eat better, how to eat on a budget, and and and, and you know how to how to make every uh, last piece of food 
uh, work mm-hmm. so that it's delicious and and sustainable and and they're sustainable. And, and again, I get back to why am I still in this business? It's so heartwarming to see that it becomes so important to so many people, uh, and that they do make it their own, and and they and they want to genu- genuinely see people be able to make a better life for themselves, um, uh, be able to survive in, in a lot of cases, but then be able to make a better life for themselves. And then the payback comes from those people, um, you know, feeling like, okay, I got a break and now uh, I got to give others a break. And so uh, I think the more we can perpetuate it, that's why I want to do, you know, those dinners across the entire state. Heck, I'd like to do them across the, the whole country, you and your sister Debbie. Uh, oh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the way we think about De- it. Deb- Debbie and I have talked that's about that, and about I've talked to well. Don Sweeney about it, the yep. NRA. So uh, I think there's no reason why we can't say, how about if we have one night a year in America where America goes out to eat, and we use that money yep. to to really make an incredible difference. Right. So, um, Tell us as we wrap up, what should we know about Project Bread and about the Massachusetts Restaurant Association that we haven't covered here. What should our listeners know? Uh, certainly, the Walk for Hunger. We've yeah. got to have that on everybody's radar screen. Yeah, and you've got a website. Sure. I'm sure yep. projectbread.org. I'm guessing is yep. is where people can go. But yep. what else should we know about your work and, and particularly what's coming around the corner? What's coming down the pike yeah. for you next? I, I think the the engagement piece is is I you know I think politically where we are in our country right now. Um, you know people have to be actively engaged. We all have to be Bob Lutz <laughs> and be out there doing something to give back to our community. And so for Project Bread um, as part of our 50th, but moving forward, we really want to provide that platform for engagement. Um, we certainly want people to show up on the first Sunday in May, May 6th this year and walk with us and raise awareness about the issue of hunger. Um, but then we want them to keep on walking the walk and, and, and whatever that means for them. If that means volunteering um, in their community, if that means joining our advocacy policy team. Um, but but for us, it's really, we've got these um, you know, tens of thousands of walkers and then hundreds of thousands of people giving money to them. So we've got an engaged group that has already raised their hand and said, you know, I care about the issue of hunger. Um, and so we really want to leverage that group and move it forward. So I would encourage any individual who um, cares about the issue of hunger and, and wants to get involved, um, you won't get turned away from Project Bread. We will find a way to Good. absolutely plug you in and, and use your skills, your expertise, and, and however you want to make a contribution to, to solving this solvable problem, we will we will leverage you in every capacity that we can. And as we talked about earlier, you'll be part of an effort that is truly unique in this country and, exactly. and needed everywhere, but fortunately, we're blessed to have here in Massachusetts. Yeah. Thank you. Um, how about with the Restaurant Association, Bob? Um you know, so uh, I think I would say uh, two things, uh, but related. One is, um, sadly, um, the media tries to sell newspapers these days, and, and there's a lot of headlines that come out that are very misleading about our industry, and that really riles um, the owners and, and operators in our business because we know we are the land of hope and opportunity for so many people. and. It's we, you know the stories that we've seen have just been incredible, and so I would, I would say that uh, sadly I think you know we're we're sometimes portrayed negatively in the media, and undeservingly so. And I and I will defend us against everything uh, in that way. You know I said fifteen thousand three hundred fifty businesses in Massachusetts. You know what? Not everybody does business the right way, and if somebody does business the wrong way, and they're bad, we're going to call them out before anybody else will. But you know, 99.9% of those businesses do the right thing. And so, um, you know, please understand that one or two examples does not 
exemplify what this entire industry does. And the reason I think it's most important is because, and I said this before, I don't think there's any more philanthropic industry, uh, more philanthropic industry than what we do. We are all about our neighbors. We are all about um, the uh, communities in which we do business in. And we're very passionate about giving back and providing opportunity and trying to make a better lives for those that are around us because it does benefit us. And because we want people to come to our restaurants and we want to be that community place where people can come in and share stories and be together and grow together and have fun and forget about the bad part of life every once in a while. And so, um, I know we provide those opportunities and I think, you know, uh, MRA, uh, last, the last two years we've, we've awarded more than a hundred thousand dollars in scholarships to, um, students that are going to, um, that need the money the most that are going to go to find a career in culinary arts or hospitality management. I mean, we put our money where our mouth is and our, and our business partners and our members do that. And it's really, really uh, heartwarming. So hopefully we can get people to understand that. Well, I see why you are the president and CEO of the Massachusetts <laughs> Restaurant Association. You are a great champion and advocate. Uh, so I've been here with Bob Laws, president and CEO of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Not just for being here, but for your leadership and your incredible support for so many community efforts. Really no, a treat you. to have you here. And Aaron McAleer, the new leader of Project Bread, Ooh. who uh, Share Strength is going to get to work in more, uh, more close partnership with now. And uh, we're thrilled to welcome you to this fight, Aaron. Thank you so much. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach. Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.